Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. It is my mission to normalize the word ambition when it comes to women. That we should own it. You want what you want for your life and you shouldn't have to soft pedal it. And it 100% does not mean some corporate ladder climber backstabber, right? Ambition is simply wanting what you want for your life and going for it. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season of The Females will explore the world of meltdowns and comebacks. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Anne Choquette, the former editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine, author of The Big Life, and a champion for millennial women who are redefining the meaning of power and success. But championing women isn't why I asked Anne to join us, although we'll definitely cover that. I actually wanted Anne to come talk about what I call the ambition trap. I'm a millennial woman who grew up with messages from magazines like Seventeen and TV shows where women had the corner office and a full social life. And so when I was younger, I truly believed that if you did X and Y, then you'd find happiness and success. But my relationship with ambition has always been a tricky one, a relationship in which I've always known that I wanted something big, I just haven't always known what. Sometimes drive and direction don't work in tandem, and that can feel really, really frustrating. All that mess is something Anne totally understands. She's a bit of a millennial woman guru, and I'm sure that many of you can relate to that feeling as well. Which is why on this episode, we'll be discussing what exactly ambition means and why women struggle with the ambition trap. How to deal with the itch or that feeling that something better might be out there. And the different meanings and outcomes behind side hustles. But before all those serious topics, I had to start by turning the tables and asking Anne the exact question she starts all of her interviews with. I want to start with a question that you like to start with, which is when you were 16, what did you imagine your life would be like? I love that question. And I'll tell you why I asked that question um, before I tell you what I imagined my life would be like. But I, I find that whenever anybody is stuck in their life, and says, um, man, I've been working so hard and I've lost sight of my dream or my dream feels so much harder 
to reach or I don't even know what my dreams are anymore, that I ask them to go back to their 16-year-old self and tell me what it is that they imagined they want to be. And not because um, I think that um, what you really want to be now is a backup dancer for Britney Spears or an extra on the hills because those jobs are taken um, by somebody who's probably significantly younger than you are. But um, the the core of those dreams, the nugget in those dreams are our true selves. It was before we started editing ourselves, that 16 year old dream. When you first pop your head up and look around and see your possibility in the world, that's what happens when you're 16 years old. And so I always tell people, what was the feeling that you wanted to bring into your life from um, that 16 year old dream. And that's the thing that you should chase in your life now. So when I was 16, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I, um, you know, like a, like a, like your traditional, um, you know, suburban high school. And I was desperate to come to New York city and become a writer that I, I felt like I would always at every opportunity go into center city, Philadelphia, right. And hang out with like the punk rock kids on South street. And, um, you know, it was the, it was the late eighties, early nineties. And so I wanted, you know, there was like Alterna and, um, it was really fun and edgy and, um, I wanted to be New York city. I wanted to be where the action was. I wanted to be where, um, writers were having good ideas. I wanted to hang out in the village. I wanted to drink cappuccinos. Like to me, that was the ultimate. And, um, so I actually, I went to NYU, um, and I, uh, I went, I got a degree in English literature and creative writing with full intention of being, a novelist actually. And, um, and then I had this epiphany sometime around, um, frankly, like as late as possible. It was my senior year in college. And I was like, wait a minute. I think that being a writer is going to be a shortcut to, um, a life of loneliness and, <laughs> uh, and financial ruin. And so I was like, wait, quick, I have to get a job job. Um, and so that's when I sort of pivoted. I mean, pivot is such a, a dramatic word for when you're uh, 21 years old. But I started going after magazine jobs because for me, that was the intersection of writing and excitement and ideas. And frankly, like there were a lot of parties to go to. It was the 90s and everything was happening in New York City. So um, that was the beginning of my uh, of my of making my 16 year old dream come true. I want to talk about how your career path went from, you know, getting your first magazine job to becoming the editor in chief of 17 magazines. Oh, I wish I could tell you that I had this grand plan to become the editor of a legendary brand, but that did not happen at all. I wouldn't that have been nice uh, though. <laughs> it was yeah, all perfectly I mean, planned out. <laughs> it, it, it was being editor of 17 was an unbelievable honor. And it was my job in that role to make this iconic brand 70 plus years old, to make it relevant for a new generation of young women. And so that to me was the ultimate challenge. But when I started out, 
um, I was an intern at Rolling Stone magazine and I was an assistant at the American lawyer magazine. Um, and so you would think that they have nothing in common and they really don't at, but I learned something so important at both of those two early jobs. When I was at Rolling Stone was when Kurt Cobain died, um, the, uh, lead singer of Nirvana and, you know, it was my job to like answer the phone and to pass mail around the office and to clean out the fax machine. That's how long ago it was. We had a fax machine. But when Kurt Cobain died, suddenly the letters that came in to the magazine were so passionate. People were reaching out to this magazine as if it was their friend saying um, how important Kurt and Nirvana had been in their lives. And I was in charge of reading all of those letters and I was sort of blown away by the connection people had by this, like, you know, by a, by a brand, right? Like, wow, people really thought of it like their friend. <clears throat> then when I was at the American lawyer, um, it was at the beginning of um, sort of the dot-com boom. And so it was this amazing, it was, it was run by this legendary journalist named Stephen Brill. And he had launched the American Lawyer magazine, a series of newspapers, um, an online service for attorneys, and he had launched Court TV. And this was at the time that O.J. Simpson um, drove his white Bronco down the highway. And so suddenly we were having like this idea of cameras in the courtroom, which was the first sort of groundbreaking thing that we did. Um, was a really provocative idea that was a new idea. But what I learned from being at The American Lawyer is how to surround your audience, right? How to cater to everything they need. So here was an audience of um, mostly big law firm attorneys. And the, um, the man who ran the company, he figured out how to be wherever they are, when, wherever and whenever they are, and give them whatever they needed. And those two ideas at the very beginning of my career were um, so rich, like such important seeds to plant for me. So even though lawyers were not my audience and, um, you know, the, and Rolling Stone sort of went on, down its own path, it was the thing that in my, in my career that I spent all my time thinking about how can I program to this generation of young women who were growing up with me when I was working in teen magazines at Cosmo Girl and then later at 17, and how can I be so important to their lives and be their friend, right? Be the brand that they want to turn to when life is complicated and hard and to also celebrate um, you know, really important moments with them and how can you surround them with an idea? And so, um, those were the two, those were like really important pieces of my early career. I went from the American lawyer. I went to write about legal issues at a teen magazine, um, sort of things like curfew and I escaped a cult was one of my favorite stories that I did there. And then from that, I went to the launch of Cosmo girl and I, I loved launching a magazine from the ground up. I felt like we were, um, changing the world and doing something. It was really intoxicating this idea of doing something brand new. And then when I got to 17, um, it was an opportunity to put my stamp on such an iconic brand and 
and to I you know I had come from this kind of startupy almost like an underdog mentality and here I was at this legendary brand and um, I really held on to that scrappy startup <laughs> mentality because I to be honest like the minute that you start to feel like you deserve to have two million readers or that like you just deserve to be the in the top um, you know, largest magazine brand, that's when you're in trouble. That's when you stop like innovating. And so if you're constantly feeling like you're a little bit of the underdog and you have something to prove and that you want to make your mark in the world, um, it keeps you hungry. It keeps you looking for what's next. Hey guys, I want to take a minute to tell you about something that I recently tried and I'm totally loving. HelloFresh, a meal kit delivery service. You know, I'm not the world's best cook and I have a really long commute, like three hours each day. And the last thing I want to do when I get home is to cook. But HelloFresh has really changed that for me with their pre-measured ingredients and step-by-step instructions, including pictures. And it's really brought joy back to cooking dinner for me. And since time is always tight, I really appreciate that HelloFresh offers subscriptions that deliver the food right to my door each week for less than $10 per serving, way cheaper than eating out. In fact, the other night, I made the sweet potato and black bean tacos. They're delicious, and I had enough left over to take to lunch, so total win. So I want to offer you guys a special promo to try HelloFresh. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com backslash females60 and enter the promo code females60. Again, for a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh backslash females60 and enter the promo code females60. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Now let's get back to the show. So your book is called The Big Life. What Can you explain what that means exactly? I mean, I, I think a lot of women listening to this are probably millennial or they understand, yes, I, I understand that there's a stereotype about me, but I have all these big dreams. Like, you know, when they hear the title of your book, The Big Life, they're probably all like, yes, yes, yes. But what is that exactly? So can I mean, you- the big, yeah, the big life is life on your own terms. It is not having it all that is one size fits all and it does not fit all. That is like someone else's idea of the way things should be. Just like you said, it's a tick list um, of milestones that don't necessarily mean what you think they mean that you just have to achieve. Right. But the big life is you decide what's meaningful to you and what's going to give you joy and happiness and meaning and money, frankly, um, and love and success and um, all of those and respect um, and all of those pieces together, but it's on your own terms. Do you think the millennial generation is asking these questions more than any other generation? Or do you think it's that there's more of, you know, like a microscope on millennial generation. And now, you know, because of the internet, we have so much more information and like we have more opportunities. So therefore we want to be able to do it all. Like, I'm just kind of curious, like, do you think the millennial generation does, does stand out as being totally different than the, the women that came before us? Or do you think it's that we know more? And so we're able to talk about it and write books about it. Well, I'll tell you, um, I am solidly Gen X. And as you can tell, I, you know, as I, I told, I was an intern in at Rolling Stone in 1994 when Kurt Cobain died. And so I am solidly Gen X and it's true 
every generation, it is your right and responsibility to reject the generation that came before and to shape things in a new way that work for you. But when my, I grew up in a, uh, I came of age in a recession too. And when my generation was faced with all of these dwindling job possibilities, we took a pass. We were the slackers, right? We like got, um, I put, I'm giving you air quotes. We got Mick jobs, which are, um, you know, like some kind of a job at a coffee shop or a McDonald's to tide us over until the economy right-sided. But when the recession hit for millennials, that was the moment that shaped this generation. And after we had been promising you and you had been promised such great affluence and sort of easy affluence of the early 2000s, when the recession hit and you had the rug pulled out from underneath you, you got mobilized. Millennials got smart and ambitious and started to figure out how to break the rules so that the system worked for them. Um, you know, one of the quotes of the women I interviewed in my book, I think is one of the best things that anyone ever said that you had a choice to take a bet on a system that was broken or to bet on yourself and an entire generation of young women bet on themselves. And that is the game changer. That's the thing that sets millennials apart from generations of women who came before them. I'm kind of curious about, we've mentioned the word ambitious a few times, and um, it's definitely something I've been thinking a lot about. And your work is really changing the narrative for what it means to be a quote unquote ambitious woman. Um, what what do you want the new narrative to be? You know, I think in, in the past, the narrative about being ambitious was you know, you were hungry, you would step on people's heads to get to the top, you, you know, were going to be single and not have children, but you would be successful. And I, I don't think that's the narrative is at all anymore. And maybe it never was, but it was certainly sometimes I think the feeling that women got was that you can't have it all, you know, being ambitious would leave you alone. Um, do you think we've fallen into like a new narrative or we're defining a new narrative? So it is my mission to normalize the word ambition when it comes to women, that we should own it. You want what you want for your life and you shouldn't have to soft pedal it. And it 100% does not mean some corporate ladder climber backstabber, right? Ambition is simply wanting what you want for your life and going for it. And it's not only about work, right? It's about building all the pieces of your life, the, um, the work and the career and the love and the partnership and the relationships so that you have this idea of, of the big life. Um, but that happened to me when I was a junior reporter, I interviewed for a job and, you know, in my cover letter, I probably wrote like, I am young and hungry and ambitious and willing to learn. And I went in for an interview with this man, older man, and he said, everything here looks great, but what's this ambition thing? Does that mean you're going to stab people in the back and step over people to get ahead? And I was so stunned. It had never occurred to me that that's what he meant. What I meant is I'm not just going to sit here and fill the role the way the woman before me did and the woman before her did, right? I'm here to figure out how it's going to work for me and to do something meaningful, right? If you want somebody who's just going to fill the job, like, get somebody else. 
but I had a vision for what I wanted to achieve in this job. And so like, we should not apologize for having a vision for our lives, for wanting something, for knowing that we're smart and knowing that we could do something different than previous generations. And one of the things I hear from young women all the time is that, man, if only they would just let me do X, Y, and Z, right? They see all these barriers that are in their way. Some of them are systemic, some of them are people. And so I tell, I, I sort of come into this moment and I tell young women to see those barriers as opportunities, right? To see people who you see are in your way as opportunities to learn, to deepen your ideas, to get smarter, to figure out how to strategize around them. But I also tell their bosses to let young women lead that they have the smarts and the tools and the vision and give them the reins. Well, and I, I kind of want to have the flip side of this conversation, which is what I like to refer to as the ambition trap, because, you know, I think being ambitious is a great thing and it drives you to, you know, ask for what you want and take initiative on projects and hopefully have those tough conversations with your boss so that you can lead. But I also wonder sometimes if, that many like are women remaining sometimes in the professional sphere because it feels glamorous and fun and impressive and and really because the message they got was be ambitious but also that means your identity is probably going to be connected to the success that you get with your career um and to be honest also because people work or women specifically have worked so damn hard to get to those leadership positions that we were just kind of talking about what's your advice for women who have these thoughts but also feel completely unfulfilled so they want to be they are ambitious they they have big plans um but they're and they're and they're you know on paper at least like they're checking all those boxes but they feel unfulfilled they have that itch as you you call it in your book the itch the itch is that feeling yeah, the when, itch <laughs> yeah the itch the itch is that feeling when you know there you know there's something better out there for you and it's not you're not like dying from the itch right it's not terminal but at the same time there's something else something more that you have to do out there i'll tell you this what you call the ambition trap i think is a sign that there's more for you to do and that your job should not be your everything. That one job cannot solve all your problems and be everything to you. And so for a lot of women come to me with this challenge and say, um, you know, look, I'm well paid or frankly, I have bills to pay. So I need this job, but I'm not learning and I'm not moving ahead. And, um, or they say that it's not my tribe. It's not my people. Or they say, like, I'm not really doing anything meaningful. Like, I'm making a lot of money, but I'm not doing, I'm not fulfilling. It doesn't feel like a passion. And so that's when I talk about the side hustle, right? Your your job is the thing you have to pay the bills, but your side hustle pays you in self-respect. And at different stages in your career, your side hustle means different things to you. So when you're just starting out in your career, your side hustle is the thing that's going to help you deepen your experience and your expertise, right? So if you are... Um, a, a mid-level associate in your day job and all you're doing is moving things from one column to another, right? But it's a totally fine job. But what you really want to do is be in charge. Your side hustle should put you in charge. If you're at a little bit higher level in your career and maybe your job is not that meaningful, right? You're craving something deeper and more meaningful, 
that's what your side hustle should do, which is not to say that your side hustle couldn't become your main hustle or that your side hustle couldn't become more meaningful in your life and point you in a new direction, but that you can never just put all your eggs in one basket, one job. For me in my career, um, my side hustles now all go together. So I, um, I'm on the board of a not-for-profit that helps women in the South Bronx get their GEDs so that they can um, go to college. And that's my way of putting my money where my mouth is on the big life for all. I am on the advisory committee of a startup that helps women in developing nations become the first in their families to graduate. And that's my way of um, supporting young women's education and young women's independence. Um, and I, I devote my time. I say yes to a lot of coffees and mentorship opportunities for young women. Like I'm happy, I'm happy to increase my tribe, um, and my sisterhood. And I particularly do it for young women who, um, who aren't just, they're not coming to me just to be kind of like transactional in a way, but they're actually coming to me with like opportunities and complicated questions that we can work through together. Um, I'm happy to do that with them. So all of the ways in w- that I sort of work that are outside my regular, um, you know, day-to-day workflow, they all feed into the thing that I feel most passionately about, which is helping women own their power in the world. Which was your full-time hustle for a long time. It, and it's to be honest, when people talk about... Um, you know, people talk about pivoting or changing careers. And I just don't see it that way. I see that this is just the stage in my career is a different manifestation of the same ideas that I had um, about women's success and power and ambition. Um, it's just a new way. It's a new way to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I have two thoughts on this about when you were talking about women in their careers is that I also think people have a very high expectation that their job should fulfill so many pieces of their life. And I, I love your, your point about, um, you know, having a side hustle that develops into and takes different shapes along your life. And also not always feeling like your side hustle has to make you money. I think there's a, really, right. you know, a misconception about like, if you have a side hustle, then it has to be like, what are you doing on the side to make extra income? And I know, I mean, career can, career contest started as a side hustle. And one of the things that I just remember is that when I would take a break from recruiting and I would go interview women about their job, I would come back to my job in recruiting so much more energized. And so I also, and I guess this is sort of a a tough example because of course I did turn it into my full-time hustle, but I actually truly think that there need to be more conversations around people understanding like it doesn't have to become that. If it does, great, but really your job, just like your, your partner, they're not going to be able to check every box for you. Um, and so, and I, and I do think that there is a little bit of a unfair expectation that your job is going to do that, right? It's going to pay you. It's going to give you respect. It's going to give you power. Um, it, it, you know, it's going to give you great leadership and, and anyway, the list could go on and on. And so If you're lucky, right? If you're lucky, you work for a company that allows all of those pieces to happen. But it's it's probably not going to happen at every stage in your career and at every job or every company. And 
the more ownership that you can have or feel over your own um over your own life over your own career is good yeah. for you right it's like it it's how it's how you protect yourself from that feeling of um that you've hit a plateau mm-hmm. or that you're not being supported at a company, right? You've got things going, it's just like, in, just like when you're dating, you're like, I've got things going on here. <laughs> Don't, I'm not sitting around waiting for you. If you want to come on board, if you want to get on board this train, like that's great. Um, like I love, I, I think everything is a little bit like dating to be honest. <laughs> well, it, it does work, especially when we talk about career stuff. I also, I often feel like I'm like dating is just like the perfect analogy to what we're going to talk about. Um, yeah. so for women listening who want to take action today, they're, they're listening to you and they're saying, yes, I, I want to start living and building a big life. What are things that they should start doing today or this week? So number one, <laughs> pay attention to the itch right? That feeling that there's something else bigger out there for you that you should be doing something else better for you. That is a feeling that you have to pay attention to. You can't ignore it. You can't brush it off. It is a, it is a signal that, um, it's a signal you should go and that you should start thinking about where you're going to, how you're going to scratch that itch, to be honest. Um, and two, you should build your squad right? Surround yourself with people who get it, who see the world the way you do and who are devoted to helping you achieve and succeed. And it's not that old idea of like transactional networking, that this is your, this is a sisterhood. It's a relationship that you're building, not just exchanging business cards over a, you know, a warm glass of Chardonnay. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing, because our podcast season theme is about meltdowns and comebacks, um, I usually ask people to rename meltdown. But one thing I would love to know, instead of having you rename it, is to tell us, uh, do you remember a time when you had a meltdown and the comeback that was related to it? So I've been thinking about this since you told me about the meltdowns. And to be honest, I do not love a meltdown. <laughs> I would love to rename it, although I don't know if I necessarily have the perfect like idea off the top of my head right this second. But um, the idea of a meltdown to me feels like you've lost control, right? Like somebody else has control over your life. And all that you can do is crumble into a big emotional ball, which is which probably it feels like when you have a loss or something goes awry, but is probably not the case. And which is not to say you're not emotional about your career because you should be emotional about your career. It's important and it's important to you. Um, But I see it much more as a part of the journey, right? That this is an opportunity to find the thing that's going to work for you. So, um, Before I became editor-in-chief of Seventeen, I was actually up to be editor-in-chief twice before. Um, And the first time was an idea that I had pitched, um, a new, brand new magazine idea that I had pitched. And um, sort of surprisingly, it caught traction and got um, sort of moved its way up and down the ranks um, at uh, Hearst, the company that I worked for. It didn't happen. And I was devastated, but I probably wasn't ready for that job or that role at that time. Um, But it was the first time that I 
had raised my hand and had probably popped out of a sea of other editors, a million other editors like me, that I had raised my hand and said like, hey, I think I could run a magazine one day. Um, and frankly, I was probably proving it to myself a little bit, right? I mean, I was I was still really young in my career, and and it was a it was a it was brave of me to think that I had a magazine idea that might actually get made. Um, and so then, about a year later, I got a call to pitch to be editor in chief of another magazine. And this time, the pitch went a lot easier, right? It wasn't I wasn't um, I wasn't quite as green. I sort of understood a little bit more what they were asking for in the pitch process. I had a, had a fantastic idea um, and I put together this excellent, excellent uh, pitch. And uh, as I was on my way in to give the pitch, I was pulled in, pulled aside and into another room and told that the job had just gone to somebody else. Oh, wow. And I was devastated. I yeah, was it takes like, your breath away. <laughs> It, I was, I, um, I thanked them for the opportunity and, uh, went back to my office and, uh, proceeded later that evening to have a couple glasses of wine <laughs> and, um, you know, get a little, I allowed myself to get a little bit emotional about it because I really felt it. I felt, um, I felt the loss of that opportunity, but the truth is that, um, I got a call a year later and when, um, that was to be, uh, that was to pitch to be editor of 17. And that time I knew how the proposal was going to go. I knew exactly who the players in the room were. I knew that I was owning my space, that I, that I had a really, like, not only did I have a really good idea, but I was the one who could execute it. Right. And, and I sound sort of cocky about it, which is easy to say now because I got the job, but, I remember feeling um, at the same time that I knew that I had a lot to prove. I remember feeling like, um, like, man, thank goodness I had those other two opportunities because I never would have nailed it if I hadn't, um, if I hadn't been up to bat twice before. And so despite the fact that both of those other times really hurt when I didn't get those, um, they were both practice for the next time that I was in the ring. And so I remind myself that because, look, every day I am daring myself to try something new and to make a new pitch and to step into new uncharted territory. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Right. But you get better and smarter for next time. Well, and I think timing is everything. And I mean, that's quite the comeback, you know, <laughs> when when I ask people to tell these stories, you know, that the timing mattered for that, but also, as you would say, like the, you knew the practice, you knew the players, like you needed all of those things to align for that to happen. And, um, I, I think that's all in hindsight, right? Like it's always easy to go back and be like, well, the timing wasn't there. And like when you're in the moment, I think it's great to hear stories like yours because there's someone who's going through the moment that you were at after the second time it didn't work. And they're wondering, is it going to ever work out for me? And like, should I stick with it? And I, I think stories like yours are essentially saying, yes, stick with it. Trust yourself. You know, you, you have it, you have, you're living the big life and how can you, um, understand that still remain to be brave, even if it's not going to work out for you every single time, because it's not going to work out for you every single time, even if you got it the first time. Every time you're getting sharper and stronger and tougher and you're getting better. And that's 
you just have to see it that way that there's no one opportunity that's so right, so perfect for you that if you don't get it, like your, your excellence will never be recognized. Like you are, um, you are getting better and closer to the woman that you want to be and that you never know what opportunities are going to come your way that are going to open brand new doors for you that are going to be the right doors. Absolutely. So tell us what's next for you and your career. So I'm having, um, I'm having a great time right now, to be honest. Like I am traveling the country, talking to women about the big life. Um, the badass babe sisterhood has, is stronger than ever. Um, it's a really rich dynamic, um, group of women. And, um, there's really never been a more urgent time to talk about women's power and influence. Um, and so um, I'm having a great time. And if people want to find you, I know you mentioned your Facebook group. Could you mention again where they can reach out to you? So annshoquette.com, A-N-N-S-H-O-K-E-T.com is really the place you can sign up for the Badass Babes newsletter. We'll send you a link to join the Facebook group. You can reach out to me and contact me there. Um, I'm at annshoquette on Instagram and and.showket on Facebook. Like I'm not an and showket at Twitter. I'm not hard to find. Please come find find me. And the book is The Big Life, which I just love. And I love that you have helped tell us all again, what is it that we want? Because it was hard to articulate it. And I think everyone is thrilled to say, I want the big life. And you're, you're helping and giving the guide for that. You deserve the big life. Thank you. That was Anne Choquette, former editor-in-chief of Seventeen and author of The Big Life. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. For more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out careercontessa.com. We also offer other great resources like career coaching, a curated jobs board, profiles on female supportive companies, and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we are a one-stop shop for your career success. And if you think that you're feeling that itch at work and want to figure out why, we have a free quiz that helps you determine your next move and why you're unhappy in the first place. It's free and it's located in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. It's really, really helpful and valuable to see what you like about the show. Plus, we'll send you all the good karma vibes in return. And don't forget that we're super social over on our Instagram channel at Career Contessa. And we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by sharing it on your social media channels with hashtag the females podcast. You can expect a new episode of the females podcast every Tuesday, and you won't want to miss next week's episode featuring Aditi Javari Kokle, the first chief marketing officer for Northwestern Mutual and a woman who's mastered the art of the career transition. Failure, especially in this world of marketing, should be part of your DNA. You shouldn't be afraid to fail because when you fail, you if you make a, don't make a mistake, you're never going to learn. If you fail, you fail fast, right? And let's start taking some calculated risks. So we run, you know, hundreds and thousands of experiments when it comes to marketing, but many of them don't work. <clears throat> and it's okay if they don't work. What have we learned and how do we refine it? So we've got a mantra within the team of test, learn, and modify. 
and that's something that I encourage my leadership uh, to to implement.